The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. That's not a break for me. In fact, these weeks are often backloaded with a lot of planning, a lot of prayer, a lot of preparation for things coming. And so uh, this was one of those weeks, so we appreciate that. It also personally gives me a chance to sit with my family, uh, something that uh, as a pastor you don't get to do very much. Uh, if you're in ministry, one of the greatest blessings that we have is that time together as a family. Uh, but when you're up here, it's hard to be down there. And so thank you for the privilege of letting me sit with my family. But for you all, it's good to hear an outside voice, even if they happen to be a Presbyterian voice. <laughs> Brian Peters, would you come up, Pastor Brian? Uh, yeah, we, we do love him. Many of you know my uh, best friend, Brian Peters. We met up at William Jewell College many, many years ago. Uh, not as many as some of you who went to, no, that's just kidding. But uh, just, just kidding. 20 plus years ago, we met back then. And uh, Brian was a different man back then. He's, he's come a long way in his spiritual journey, as we all have. But he is uh, pastors a uh, uh, Presbyterian congregation in Indiana, and uh, he brings to us a word from Revelation 7. We've had this in tow for a long time. And so as he comes, I want you to know that uh, uh, he's a brother I love. He's a brother you'll get to know. Some of you remember he preached Mark 2 in February 2017. The last time he preached here was in September 2020 in the back of Nelson's pickup truck outside. So if you were here for those COVID days, you may remember we had a pulpit back there at some time, and that's the last time he was here. He's joined by his wife, Summer, of, let me get this, 16 years, am I getting that right? And their daughter, Anna, who's almost eight and who loves cats and dogs and every animal that is under the sun. And so uh, it's good to have Brian with us. They drove up from Southwest Missouri this morning, a couple-hour drive. They live in Indiana. So I'll pray for Brian, and he's going to bring the word from Revelation 7. I've heard a little bit about what he said, and though he's Presbyterian, we're not that far off. So although we do disagree about how we baptize people, right, Brian? We dunk them, you squirt them. Is that about right? For now. For now. So <laughs> if he brings out a super soaker gun, he might have... That's a bad Presbyterian Baptist joke. So can we pray together? And uh, thank you again for the privilege. I know you'll be blessed today. Whenever you hear the word of God, you always check the word of God, but uh, may you be blessed as we pray. Let's pray together. Pray for our brother. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the first off, the, the reason we can come together cross-denominationally is because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And Lord, we may disagree on, on, on issues that uh, are, are joking aside. We, 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 we put our feet in the ground on, but at the end of the day, we are one in Jesus Christ. And that's what it's about. Would you bless Brian? Thank you for his ministry to me over many years, his church, his family, and many people uh, literally across the world who've been blessed by him, through him, and uh, his wife, Summer, and their daughter, Anna. Thank you so much. Fathers, we hear the end of Revelation 7. We know it's not the end. There's so much more to go, but may it be encouragement as we talk about the great tribulation and the great reward as we go forward. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I greet you as the beloved congregation of Jesus Christ. As you already heard, I am a Presbyterian, you are Baptists, and it probably is one of the more dangerous things usually to both begin to preach the book of Revelation 
and then to invite someone from another denomination to <laughs> preach one of the sermons. But I want to share with you my great joy to be here today, uh, because part of the reason that I can come and not be totally alarmed at standing in this pulpit is because I know of the faithful exposition of Scripture, which stems from this pulpit, uh, Lord's Day In and Lord's Day Out. And before you think that I'm just trying to talk up the pastors, knowing one of them is a dear friend for so many years, that's also a tribute I want you to know to you as a congregation. Because if you did not receive that word gladly and look to the word of Christ instead of just the mere preferences and words of men, then these men would be street preachers instead of pastors of congregations. So it takes a congregation to receive that word. And while there is a world around us that likes to hang on simply the stories and the anecdotes and the preferences that men have, you are willing to come and gladly hear the word expounded. And I pray today that what you will hear is, although, as you've heard, there are some things that separate us, at the very core of this is one Savior, the God-man, in whom we believe through faith alone we find a sufficient atonement for sin and our eternal hope. And so as we look to Revelation 7 today, we will find this. So as is your practice here, I would invite you to join me and stand together for the reading of God's holy word from Revelation 7. And here, picking up in Revelation 7, verse 9, I will be reading from the King James Version this morning. The Word of God. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The promises of God. You may be seated. Well, beloved people of God, as we approach this passage, we're coming again in the study of Revelation here to a precious vision. A precious vision, as you've already begun to hear in Lord's days past, 
of the people of God, of Christ's church. And Jesus has been giving visions that might terrify unbelievers, but to those who understand through the eyes of faith, they are a comfort. They are an encouragement. And that is hope. That is what I hope that today we will find in this passage. As you often hear each Sunday, there is a big idea to be found, and I have one from this passage for you today. Here, Jesus gives us a comforting vision of his people, as they now are, as they are to come, and as they ever will be, delivered out of great tribulation unto the Lamb. Now, as we approach that, we begin with the first of three points in good Baptist fashion. (laughs) We begin with what is already. There is a vision here that John has been given and we have been given of a people who are already here and now in the present delivered. We can see something about the present state of the church of Jesus Christ, I believe, from this passage. Now, I'm already very firmly convinced that you've heard this before, as many things I will say have already rung in your ears. But I'll say it again to you. As we read the Bible, how do we read it? Do we go to the newspaper to interpret Revelation? Do we go to our favorite Bible teacher, theologian, interpretation in this or that, commentary or vaunted tradition of the church? And I am a Presbyterian. I think there's much in the way of church history that can teach us, surely. But where do we go above all? We interpret the Bible with the Bible. If you want a commentary, if you want a place to go to understand the Word of God, first and foremost, go to this Word. And then any other, if they speak not according to this light, to this testimony, there is no light in them. So in interpreting today, we will proceed on that basis. We will look to God's Word, and we will see what it tells us about the strange and mysterious things in Revelation chapter 7. What is this great tribulation? And I'm asking you beforehand to take any preconceptions that you have, put them aside for a moment, and listen to what the Scriptures say about tribulation. Now, if we go to the Bible, tribulation is actually mentioned quite a great deal. Maybe it's not always that particular word in English. Maybe you see trial. Maybe you see affliction. Maybe you see suffering. One of the benefits of studying in the original language is to suddenly realize and say, wow, this word, this phrase is all the way through the word of God. One place very immediately where you begin to see this word, this phrase, not only tribulation, but great tribulation, is in those mysterious passages in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13, where Jesus is responding to his disciples when they've asked, when shall these things be? And he tells them about a great cataclysm, a catastrophe, a tribulation which is to come. Now, we will not spend all our time on those, and that is not the subject of this message, but I would challenge you to read those and try hard not to see it 
at least some semblance of a very great tribulation that has already happened there. Some of you may have read, whether third-hand or second-hand, or from the church historian, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, about what happened in the year AD 70, and how there was a great tribulation. There was a destruction of that temple. There was a destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, the things that are written about it, that Josephus shares about it, are so horrific, I would not encourage all the children to go read them, they will make adults' blood turn cold. There was a great judgment, an end that was brought to the system of sacrifices and ceremonies, and a definitive punctuation point that was put on the end of that old covenant to show that the new had come, and the Jews, by and large, had not received the Messiah as he had so come in the flesh. There is much to be said in those passages that seems, at least in some part, applicable to that great trial. People will debate on where you draw the line, where it may shift into the second coming of our Lord. But I think it is fairly undeniable that at least a portion of it speaks of those stones not left unturned of that second temple and the great and horrific things that were done in that day of judgment. So for me, as I read the Bible, the first question I ask is not whether or not this tribulation is somewhere way in the future, but whether or not it is simply speaking about that judgment. Now that you have all that out of the way, I'm going to say the answer is no, not merely about that judgment. Now, last Lord's Day, you heard from Pastor Darren about the great crowd, about the nations coming before the throne of the Lamb. And you heard that that was not merely the Jews alone, but that was a global multitude, wasn't it? Those from the east and the west and the north and the south of all tribes, all kindreds, all tongues and families. A great, wonderful kaleidoscope of those being saved out of this world. And that probably gives us a little bit of a hint that this can't be a merely Jewish judgment that we're talking about. It has a greater import, I believe, than simply the Jews being judged in AD 70 alone. And there are other passages of the Bible to lead us in understanding this. You see, as you read Scripture, you'll find there's almost like this great whirling spiral, this tornado of prophecy that's ever getting greater and larger and more intense as it goes. Maybe some of you have read the prophets in the Old Testament, and you've seen descriptions of the day of the Lord, Joel chapter 2. Armies, men coming like locusts, the sky, the sun, and the stars, and the moon blotted out. Cataclysm, catastrophe, judgment. And there were little judgments. There were Assyrians. There were Babylonian armies. There was a people carried off into exile. But that language always has a little bit that seems like a little more is coming. Is this all that this speaks of, or is there more leading up in judgment to the great day of the Lord? And as we'll continue to see here, also spiraling more and more in terms of salvation, 
brought to the nations. In the teaching of Jesus Christ, we find tribulation is mentioned. You perhaps remember this one well because there's a promise in it in John chapter 16. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Was that simply a promise in the first century? But, oh, we got a hundred years or two past it, and there's no tribulation left. I believe we all instinctively hear that, and we understand, oh, no, he's speaking to us too today, isn't he? This is the nature of Christian life this side of the second coming. But there is a hope. There's a promise attached to it. This is what the apostles believed. In their apostolic preaching, backed up with their deeds, when Paul was stoned in Lystra, and they thought he was dead, and they left him, but he got up and continued on. He went with Barnabas, and do you know what they started teaching, or continued rather? The same message that we must, through tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a man who knew that very experientially, didn't he? A man who had known stones falling upon his body and bruising and battering him. He knew what it was to suffer for Jesus Christ. I won't list all the scriptures or bring you into them, but surely if you start to read the letters in the New Testament, you'll find descriptions of tribulation all across them. As men who have known this tell us what it means to live the Christian life. And of course, sometimes when you read the Bible, you need to be careful that you don't miss what's smack dab there in the same book. Read Revelation, and tribulation is also here in Revelation too, isn't it? It's present at the very beginning, when John starts speaking and introducing himself in the book. And do you know what he calls himself? He tells us that he is our companion, same word, in tribulation. So there's that particular time, but also for Christians for all time. He urges the church of Smyrna, as you've already heard, to godly suffering and trial or tribulation. And the church in Thyatira is warned in a little bit of a different way. He tells them to be careful not to follow that woman Jezebel because they may experience and suffer great tribulation if they do not repent of turning towards her. That's a little sample, and I appreciate you all following me through it, but I hope you understand now that this doesn't come to us just dropping out of the sky, that when tribulation is mentioned here, it's part of a great chain, a picture that's already being painted throughout the scriptures, a picture that is not just simply in the past, and it's not a picture that is solely and wholly found in the future as well. But it is a present reality for the saint of God. And I also think that as we see this, we need to be very, very careful to note that because of this, we see that Christians pass through tribulation, but we will never entirely avoid it. 
I think that's some of the error of how people have read this and other passages in the past, hasn't it been? Where we read about this tribulation in Revelation 7, and we hear there are those who came out of great tribulation, and we think as though they've obviously been spared all tribulation, all trial, all suffering and affliction in this life. We think of it in terms of avoiding it, but this is passing through. This is, as you've already heard from the Psalms today, this is experiencing the hunger, the thirst, the heat, the fire, and going through the flood, but in the midst of that, knowing that the Lord has been with them. This tribulation is not one that people have found a path to completely go around, but they've gone through it, and yet they have not been burned. That is the vision that we are giving here today. And I believe I'm standing one and the same with my brothers here to tell you I don't understand, I can't comprehend any theology out there that teaches otherwise about Christian trial. And believe you me, there are some. There are those various kinds of health, wealth, and prosperity gospels that seem to teach that the Bible can give you a pass out of suffering, a pass out of trial. That this is not only our get into heaven free card, but it's our get into good things all around us in a very carnal and fleshly way in this world card. Maybe some of you have seen one of my favorite gospel tracts I've ever come across, which talks about on the front that familiar phrase of how God has a wonderful plan for your life. And you open it up and there's the picture of the Christians in the Colosseum with the lions. And the track goes through and it gives all of these various promises that Jesus himself made. And guess what? They are not all of easy times. They are of suffering and trial, persecution from the world, the enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil constantly on the attack. And that if you are a true saint of God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this will be a large portion of your lot in life to go through trials. Now, at the same time as we read this, there's going to be a danger for us to hear these things. Because when you start talking about valiant deeds, obedience, the, the people that are on uh, some of our favorite Lord's Day viewing is the Torchlighters series, if any of you have seen some of those. Heroes, martyrs of church history. And when you start to watch those with kids, you quickly understand how many of those end with the person around whom that little cartoon is featured dying at the end. Kids wake up very quickly to what believing in Jesus is about because the church's history is seeded with blood. And it can be very easy for all of us then to concentrate on those things, can't it? To such a degree that we make into superheroes each of those individuals. And we, we then begin to aspire to be like them so that maybe we subconsciously think we can get a better place in heaven. That we can be more lauded and honored. That we can, by our own suffering, our own blood, get a little bit more. I think you've already had this pointed out, but I want to point it out very clearly to you again. Whose robes, 
whose blood are those robes washed in? It isn't theirs. They've just come through great tribulation. They've just suffered. Their blood may have been spilt, but it's not their blood that this passage is talking about. It isn't their merits that they are treasuring up for others to use. It isn't the wonders of their incredible story of faith and honor that are at the forefront of this passage. But the way by which they have been brought out of that trial is not their own suffering, but that of another. It's the blood of the Lamb. And so from beginning to end, this entire vision always comes back to circles and centers around the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And it is by him and through him and to him that all that we see here takes place. And so for a moment, if for any of you, you have thought about your faith as fundamentally something where you do this, you achieve this, or by the very strength and the power and the fervency of your faith, you grasp hold of Jesus Christ. Understand that's not the picture that we are painted here. No, it is by the grip that Christ has on them, by the blood that he has spilled, and the sacrifice that only he can and did render, that they are brought through the fire and through the flame. There's also a present purpose to what you're seeing here that I don't want us to miss. Because some would treat Revelation, and I don't believe you've been hearing this sort of treatment to date, but some would treat Revelation as though it's kind of a cool book of different charts and things that may happen at some point in the future. But really, that's all the encouragement and comfort that you may have. And friends, John seems to think from the beginning of it that this is going to comfort the people who are then alive at that time. And I believe that it is also intended for your comfort here today. There's a present comforting purpose to this vision, and not just simply something that will happen a hundred or a thousand years from now. Now, maybe you are reading this and you say, you know, Pastor, this is very glorious language, and you've just told us that in this life you're going to pass through tribulation and trial. And so I understand that side of things. We understand that trial is coming, but how in the world can all the things that we just read be applied to us in any way here and now? I mean, we've heard about the sun not smiting you by day. Are you saying we have a health and wealth promise of no sunstroke? Are you telling us that a good Christian will never cry? No more tears? Now, God forbid we'll address that. Are you telling us that right now we should be able to, with the eyes of our flesh, see the heavenly host gathered around us and that a new temple should be built in Jerusalem today? No. Absolutely not. But do you know what? Not only the vision here, not only John with the eyes of faith, but throughout the New Testament, 
there is language like this that we are told is here and now at this very moment. Surely before you have heard from Ephesians that he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now again, you go back to the original language, there's not a lot of room for wiggling around here. This isn't something that's coming in the future. This is something accomplished and is done and presently here. If you believe in Christ, you are now presently seated with him, enthroned as kings and priests unto God. That is what the Bible says about the present reality of the believer. It is such a present reality that Paul can use it as an argument. He can say that if ye then be risen with Christ, if you know him, if you have the power of his resurrection in your soul, if with him you have ascended on high, then seek the things which are above. And he's assuming that this is true of every believer. The language that you can read here in Revelation 7 about serving night and day, as you study the scriptures, you'll find this applied to the priests in the Old Testament, that they served God night and day. And in Psalm 134, we sing about the priests serving God day and night in his holy temple. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the scriptures tell us now here today By the work of our great high priest, you are a royal priesthood unto God. You look at the Old Testament, and you see a lot of things that look glorious, don't they? You see visible manifestations of God with his people, pillars of smoke, pillars of fire. You see outward garb clothing and ornaments that are very nice for the eye to look at, jewels on that breastplate of the high priest, gold ornamenting the tabernacle and the temple. But if you think that's glory, you haven't understood what the New Testament tells us about glory, that we have something far greater even already here and now. Not just one time a year, As the great high priest would go into the holy of holies and offer sacrifice for sin and then have to repeat it each year over and over again. This one man amongst Israel who could enter into the very presence of God. But today, all of you, as you believe in Jesus Christ by true faith, have direct access to God before the throne above a great high priest who hears you in your time of need. Although with the eye of the flesh, you may not see many things that the world would call glorious. We know from the scriptures that right here, right now, is one of the most glorious, indeed the most glorious thing that occurs across the face of the earth. If you don't believe me from Revelation 7, let me just share uh, from another passage in scripture what we hear about the worship of God's church. Turning to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to see this heavenly vision. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 22. Ye are come 
unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now, we've just heard, haven't we, about the angels that are about the throne of the Lamb. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. These are those who are sealed on their foreheads, are they not? to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. But if all of that glory in that picture isn't enough, what's the heart of the vision again? And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Not in the future, not a thousand years from now, but here and now, You have gathered together with the body of Christ to worship his name and to believe upon the true gospel. Though you don't see it with your eyes, the angels are gathered about, longing to peer into these things, the mystery of redemption and godliness. Here and now, though you look at the person in the pew next to you, and though sometimes you may have sinful thoughts and think they're nothing much to look at, or maybe you think I'm nothing much to look at. Friends, one uh, of old wrote about how we sit and walk and eat and drink next to either holy glories or infinite horrors. And one day, all that truth will be revealed. And we will understand that when we sat down amongst the assembly of God's people, we sat next to eternal kings and priests unto God. Don't ever let the world around you or Satan take away the vision of what is occurring right here and right now. This is an outpost of God's kingdom on earth. As we also read, there is language here that is a little interesting to apply right now. There's language that you heard about heat and hunger about the heavenly bodies shining down and that their light will not smite, their light will not strike you down if you belong to this great multitude. This language is found in the prophets. It's found in Isaiah chapter 25, but it's also something God's people would have sung as they sang in Psalm 121, that the moon by night thee shall not smite, nor yet the sun by day. Let me just pose for you this idea for a moment, that maybe this doesn't mean that you will never suffer sunstroke in this present life. Maybe this doesn't mean that God's people will go without hunger or thirst in that very carnal and fleshly way but that rather we are being directed to trust the Lord as God's people throughout the ages, that whatever befalls us, whatever in nature or the world and the devils should seek to do against us, God will not allow his people to suffer ultimate harm from these things. They may be bad, In themselves, they may be very ill, very dark providences that come to us. They may be done by evil and wicked men. But this great multitude, this church, this people, have all the sting taken out of them. 
There may seem to be a sunburn in this life, but it doesn't hurt anymore because all the sting is taken from it. Every blow is used as part of the Lord's plan so that we know for the people of God, even death itself loses its ultimate sting. I think there is something to find here for the people of God today. Now again, you heard that word tribulation. You heard that it's a great, it's a heavy, it's a weighty thing that the people of God pass through. And so I also find it so interesting for us today that Paul gives us almost the precise opposite phrase at one point. So the man who's been stoned, the man who's become an outcast from his people, the man who has suffered shipwreck and all manner of trials in the body, this is what he says. For our heavy, no, our light, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So if you want some of the summary of how I believe you can apply this vision presently to your life, look at that. That what we agree is a great tribulation, that there is a lot of heft, a lot of weight to it. Things that would take any mere citizen of this world and drag them down into the muck. Through faith, we begin to see that it is a light affliction. You start looking at things in light of eternity and you say, all right, how much is this short span of suffering compared to eternity? And it keeps running far further than Darren could ever run that marathon. It is off into the distance and beyond, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far that line continues, for it never stops. Do you see how small that speck of suffering is compared there? It is nothing, and suddenly what's so heavy has become light. What seemed to be a great thing weighing you down and all the weight of your sins in the midst of this trial, suddenly you realize that God uses it to glorify him. That even if you think that in this trial you have thoroughly mucked up the entire thing and every bit of your obedience to date has been something that has not glorified God in the slightest, it's still a light affliction because you know what he can bring out of that? the glory of his grace. Isn't that a wonderful, load-lightening thing to remember that when you have thoroughly made a complete mess of your life and there is every single part of it that you, can, that you look at and you see just written disobedience, sin, iniquity, transgression across the face of it, well, that's such a wonderful, glorious place for the Lord to show his grace. And if nothing else, you will be a great trophy of grace at the last day. That takes, not through the eyes of flesh, but through the eyes of faith, all of the weight of that trial and gives you a means by which you can set it aside so that you can have, rather than a heavy, a light load and burden because that is the Messiah who calls us to light affliction when we see it through faith. Now, as I say all of this, before we move on to what will come, 
I want to give one final caution thinking about tribulation in this life. Because with all that I have now said, you may still find a way to come away and think, well, if I'm a good Christian then, every single day of my life, I will learn through faith how to put this all aside and the tears will be dry on my cheeks. There will be none. And I will just be filled with such a lively joy that no one will ever have a reason to ask me what's wrong. God forbid that you would hear such a message from this pulpit. I certainly will not preach it. We live in what the Bible calls Baca's Vale, or the Valley of Tears. In this life, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We walk through fire. We walk through, through floods, and it is a world of sorrow. Not only do we walk in that valley of tears, but we also may experience what we could call a dark night of the soul. There have been many faithful Christians in the history of God's church who have found the presence of God seemingly far from them at times, which was itself the leading and the guidance of God. There have been faithful Christians who at times have been not so faithful and descended down to depths of sin only to be lifted back up again. We can think of believers like David and the depths to which he fell and yet was restored again. This is a tough, a rocky road and a valley of tears to walk. And so I want to highlight for you that, again, the verse, the text that we have today, actually not only does it assume tribulation, but it also assumes tears. It doesn't say that the Lord will never allow the Christian to have tears to appear, but rather that as those tears fall, that he shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. Now, something I want to share with you that I learned more consciously recently here. Not only can Christians suffer sorrow, suffer depression, suffer dark nights of the soul, but I think it's also fair to say that believers sometimes can feel this sorrow more deeply than the lost. So far, do we want to be from minimizing these tears? We want to recognize that the Christian life will sometimes have greater sorrow and greater tears because of who and what we know. You know your sin if you are a Christian. Now, there are many people out there who go about their lives seemingly carefree, so much of them, because their conscience, their heart is cauterized. It's burned, and there is no feeling left to it. But for one who has had a heart made anew and given life by the king of kings, it's a tender heart, isn't it? It's a heart that is easily pricked and wounded, and most of all, when you feel the weight and the guilt of your own sin pressing down upon you, you will weep tears for that sin. In the world around you, you'll find people who are upset, and they cry because they've broken man's law, 
or they've been caught in whatever it is. They've been shamed before others, or they have a penalty, sometimes financial, sometimes criminal, sometimes social to pay. And so they may cry because they got caught. But for the Christian, there's a deeper kind of a pain that comes that elicits tears to flow, and that is because we have offended our Father in heaven. It is because knowing the depth of the love of the Savior, how could we, how could we ever violate his law again? And yet we do. So for Christians, feeling the weight of all those things, the psalmist says that rivers of tears fall down his cheeks because they do not keep the Lord's law. And knowing that we are amongst that they who so often do not keep the Lord's law Tears will run down our cheeks if we are his. We see our failures. We see our sins. We see something of the full horror of evil in this life, and it will bring sorrow to us. And so that means that there's all the more comfort here, dear believer, when we find that God will also wipe away the tears of his saints. We've heard something of grief today and how this congregation is looking to share in those griefs. And this is one of the ways that I found in which the Lord places his people to wipe away the tears of the saints is to obey what the Bible tells us and to weep with those who weep. Part of that wiping away of the tears in this age is to pl place other sorrowing pilgrims alongside us so that we know we are not alone. And though they may not have all the answers, that they can be there to weep with us, sharing in both our sorrows and our joys. He's given us the body of Christ to wipe away our tears. And we are his hands in that. He's given us, in that way, and for our good, he's given us a word. So I want you to look at this Bible and to revision it for a moment and to see it in this new light. Every page of this holy word is a divine tissue that the Lord has provided to you to wipe away the tears of his people. From the beginning to the end of this holy book, we find promises, that key of promise to let us out of the castle of giant despair. And he has given us plentiful, abundant, in fact, so much that you get to the end of your life, you still will not be done finding the promises and the comforts of God's word. Now, you may turn to many things in this life to try and drive away those tears. You may try to find it at the bottom of a bottle. You may try to find it in all manner of outward use of this or that thing in this world, but here is the solace that is beyond any other, the beginning of a peace that passes understanding, promises intended for those who weep, but joy will come with the morning. Again, the psalmist sings, those that are broken in their hearts and grieved in their minds, he healeth, and their painful wounds he tenderly upbinds. Now, that's not a God like the nations. 
That is a God who heals and binds our wounds and who wipes away our tears. And so what I really want to highlight at the end of this, that picture that brings it all together again, is that picture of the Lamb. Because unlike the gods of the nations or the philosophies that men run to in this, we have a God who gathers and wipes away the precious tears of his saints. You've heard probably many times before that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And just think about this for a moment. Because this is a mystery. How can we serve a Lord who weeps? That's a tricky question when you think about it. Theologians have grappled with this, and some of them have said, well, it's because he doesn't know all things, or he doesn't have all power. It's because he's surprised, he's scared too. It's because of all of this. And yet the Scripture leaves little room for that, does it? The immutable, invincible, omnipotent, all-wise Lord who created heaven and earth, not out of something that was, but by the very word of his power, the one who sustains all things, the very molecules that you are breathing in and out right now. How can we have a God who weeps? How can the immutable and unchangeable Lord of all have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How can we have a vision of the Alpha and the Omega shedding tears over wayward Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he weeps. Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the glorious answer to all of this. That great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, the incarnation. By taking to himself a true human body and a reasonable soul, all that it is to be man and ever will be man. The God of the universe is now a God who weeps, for he is the God-man. So, friend, if you are here today and you are loaded down with your sorrows, if you do weep, I desperately want you to know the heart of Jesus Christ for sinners like you. It may be that you have, or at least that you feel like you have brought down every bit of this upon your head, that every tear that you shed is incredibly well-deserved, and so it may very well be. But I want you to know that there is one who has wept for wayward sheep, this one here who is called the Lamb of God, that here in this wondrous book we see a man of sorrows, a man who will not only wash your feet with his tears, but through his sorrow and suffering, washes the souls of sinners. There is no greater wiping away of tears than is to be found in Jesus Christ, who has suffered, he has sorrowed, and he has died for sinners weeping such as you. This is 
the present vision of the church of Jesus. I want you to get that. And by this point in time, you're understanding he still has two points left. If there's nothing else that you take away, I want you to have that vision of the Lord and Lord, the King of Kings, the weeping and sorrowful Lamb, who stands at the center of the city of God and now gives you that position and that grace in time of need. But I do believe that a thing or two still can be said about what is yet to come. And so briefly... I ask your leave to enter into that for a moment here, and I understand that some of these things are a bit more of the dangerous territory. We have the core, we have the center, but now let's see what more may be seen here. I do believe that secondly, Jesus comforts us with a vision of his people, also in a future deliverance, the future state of the church. Now, last Lord's Day, you heard about the great multitude, about the nations. And there was something that perhaps some of you hopefully picked up on. You heard that there were more than 3,000 people groups that are still unreached for Jesus Christ. You are given a number around 4 billion that need to hear the name of the Savior still proclaimed. Now, I hope that perhaps you had two things happen within you as you heard that, one of them being a bit of that pang of sorrow, that as you heard of all the lost who don't yet know Jesus, that you did weep, that you did inwardly at least feel something of the heart of compassion for all those who do not know the name of Jesus Christ. But perhaps at the same time, some of you also felt a burst of hope felt a bit of excitement, felt a bit of encouragement for what the Lord might do amongst the nations yet. I do believe that there is some encouragement to draw here. We may be at different places in the extent of the excitement, in the extent to which we think this or that will go, but I hope to encourage you in that the Lord is not yet done in extending this great multitude yet. The picture that is painted here is glorious, it is vast, and it's a multitude that no man can number. And that should be hopeful and exciting for the people of God. You heard last Lord's Day that someday God is going to save someone from every people group. I think that is a fundamental, one of the most clear things that we can say about these promises in Scripture. The portrait's very, very particular. Every tribe, every tongue, every family or kindred, every nation that the Lord is sending forth His gospel so that in this kaleidoscope of language and culture and background, we will see a holy multitude gathered to the Lord. Now today, the Presbyterian comes to the pulpit and asks to push you just a tiny bit further to hope, and if nothing further, to simply pray. Perhaps God is going to so powerfully move that he will save many from this or that people group. And perhaps even one push forward, perhaps we will see something of God so powerfully moving that we can say not only this one or that one there, but we can say a people group, a nation, has come to Jesus Christ. 
I encourage you, at the very least, to share with me in prayers for such, even if we have differences in the level of what it plays out in in the last day. You see, as we read the different scriptures that are referenced here, we go back to some wondrous ones in the prophet Isaiah. In passages like Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 49 that are uh, cited here in Revelation chapter 7. As we hear those words that we are given about the tears being wiped away from the eyes. As we hear the words about the hunger and the thirst vanishing and the sun not smiting by day. It's helpful to go back and read the prophet and to see what kind of a portrait he's painting beyond that verse. Like many places in the Old Testament prophets, there's a lot of language that seems to speak of great things coming. Certainly some applications to when the people of God were brought out of captivity and a restoration from Babylon in that day. But again, that spiral of prophecy, things seem to go even more intense, don't they? The language doesn't seem to have its fullness just applied to that. We see language of north and south. We see language of east and west, all coming up to the holy mountain of God. We see the nations unified together and flowing into this great city of Zion. And as we use the language of Scripture here, I believe that there are still yet great and glorious things for the church of Christ. Again, we may have differences in the degree, the extent, and all, but I would encourage you in hope as we look to the future. Be comforted and be excited in evangelism. Whatever difference there might be between you and I on the optimism that we have for exactly what's going to happen Never be so pessimistic in reading the Scripture that you start to see your zeal for witnessing to Jesus Christ diminished. Never begin to think in your mind, well, I don't really think the Lord's going to do that, and so there's not a whole lot of sense. I mean, you know that there are groups, there are people out there. There have been, in your own history, Baptists, who have taken such view and been anti-missionary, anti-sending forth the gospel in various ways. As often as Presbyterians are spoken of as the frozen chosen, this can be found amongst many denominations. Don't let your zeal for evangelism be diminished, but when you see this sort of vision in the Scripture, be excited, be encouraged. Have a holy vision in your mind as you seek these things that the Lord, by his word and spirit, where you think there are only dead stones, as you look out upon our own nation and you perhaps begin to think things as though, Ichabod, the glory has departed. There is such a falling from the things of older days. As you start to see the degree to which churches have apostatized from the truth, as you see wickedness and high places of rule in our own nation and others, and all of these things, don't let that tamp down your zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come back to this portrait and get in your mind's eye firmly that portrait of the great multitude flowing from all the nations worshiping the Lamb. And when you perhaps go out door to door, 
or when you find yourself sitting at a bus stop, or when you're eating somewhere and you have that chance to simply speak a word of grace, let that drive you on in hope in what God's gospel does in the hearts of men. I would encourage you to be comforted and excited in your prayers as well, because we know that prayer is effective as it is made in the name of Jesus Christ. Pray big prayers. I would encourage you, pray prayers with this sort of vision in your mind's eye. Pray not only for this one here or that one there or this small group or in your own town or nation, but pray for the nations to be brought to Jesus Christ. One part that is very dear and near to my own heart from what I've studied in the Scriptures You heard something of how this gospel has now gone out to all nations. But let us not forget about in all of this the Jewish nation to pray for them. I'm not talking about praying for a red heifer or a temple to be rebuilt. Again, to be very clear here, I am not talking about a particular political or otherwise uh, stratagem to play out. I am talking about a transformative revival in the hearts of men such that we can say the Jewish people, in hardening, hardening and blindness for a time, brought into the marvelous light of the gospel together with the Gentiles. There are many past theologians who wrote about how it was that for many, many long years, our elder sister in the faith, the Jewish nation, prayed for the Gentiles to come to the Lord. And now in this day and age where there is that hardening and that blinding, how much more should we, the little sister brought in, be praying for the Jewish people to come to know the Lord of glory? Let us pray for the Jews. Let us pray for Egypt. Let us pray for Ethiopia, for Cush. Let us pray for nations as we read Isaiah. There are some of them that we don't even know quite what's mentioned. In one of these passages, there's some uh, thought that even China may, may be mentioned within this, showing us the extent, the global extent to which there is envisioned people coming to Jesus Christ. And so I do have a hope based in many scriptures, Romans 11 being one of the many that give great promise, that there will yet come a day of even further gospel revival across the face of the earth. Still a day where there is sin, still a day where there are those in the heart that do not follow Jesus as Lord, but that we can look forward to wondrous and great things because Christ's gospel conquers. But again, whatever you may think about the particulars of those things, pray big prayers, hope, great hopes, and witness with that fervency that you see in your mind's eye the very nations brought into the victory train of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of God's people. Well, finally and thirdly, just a very brief bit more, and it is brief because I want to leave much of this for later on in Revelation. If you've studied the book ahead and read to the end, it's not cheating, but it does tell you some of the exact same things that you just read, some of the same promises, and some of this very same picture is repeated at the end of the book. 
And that's because those of us who have read this passage and said, still, it has much to say to even the here and now and what is to come, we realize that the fullness of this, the culmination of all of it, the height of the intensity is in whatever will be in the eternal state of the church of Jesus Christ. We have been saved if we are in Christ. We are being saved as he sanctifies us and makes us more holy and conforms us to his image. And we will be saved in that one day, not only in our souls, but in our bodies. We will be able to say with Job that with these eyes and my flesh I see God. In the face of Jesus Christ. And so all of this portrait, this vision, is leading up to this culminating, holy, glorious sight. That as the saint is delivered from this life by death, that he is immediately in paradise and in the presence of his Lord. And that only that in soul, but that one day, We look forward to that great trumpet sound, the heralding of the Messiah going forth, and every eye shall see, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that great and glorious day comes, friends, the picture before your eyes will be the one that is painted here. Except in that day, there will be no more crying. There will be no more sorrows and no more tears. Death. The final enemy will be put under the feet of King Jesus once and for all. Every enemy that has assailed his throne, Satan and all the devils, the world around us, and most importantly of all, the flesh within, that sin that you still struggle with to this day, these things will be fully and ultimately and in all the intensity of it under his dominion even as they are today in great uh, proclamation of power. In that day, they will come in all their fullness. I hope that as you consider that, the thing that makes you most excited is that aspect of the tears being wiped away because you have no more sin. To think of a day in which you will no longer offend the one who bought you with a price. And I hope that when you think of that day, that this is not one of the movies of this world that paint pictures of being able to be together with your favorite pet, eat your favorite foods, all of these various and sundry things. I'm not trying to tell you every jot and tittle of what heaven will be like, but if there's one thing that's clear, it is around the Lamb. You heard this last Lord's Day, and I want to drive this home again with all the power that I have by the Spirit and His Word of power. If you do not now, today, look to that centrality, look to that worship centered around the Lamb and find joy in it, then you certainly won't eternally. If you do not behold the glorious light of God's glory and grace now by the eyes of faith and see it as gladness and joy, then the God who is all light and in him no darkness dwells, he will be to you an inexpressible fire of darkness forever. Today, 
is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Today you can say you have heard the gospel of salvation, that God has come, taken to himself a true and reasonable soul and human body, that he is all that it is to be man and yet God in the flesh. That the Messiah has died for sinners such as you, living a perfect life unto the end in your place and rising on the third day as the capstone on his victory so that sinners like you might rise from the dead one day as eternal glories to be his worshipful crowd. My prayer is that you will join together with all of us in that great throng around the throne of the Lamb one day, and that you will find the greatest joy of heaven to be the Lamb, that you will know the greatest glory of God is to see the shining of the face of Jesus Christ. You can begin that here and now and know that wondrous gospel. And so I call you to that today, that with your eyes of faith, you would believe and trust in him and know this glory of grace forever. May the Lord bless us and keep us. Let us now pray. The Lord of glory, we come unto thee, and we seek thy face, for thou art a God of glorious light and good. Thou hast given us wondrous visions this day, forth from thy word, and we pray that we might not be overwhelmed by them, or that as we are struck to our knees, by thy glory and thy holiness, thy goodness and power, that we might also be brought to our knees to rise up in faith as grace restores us unto thee. Bless, O Lord, this day that we might each one, man, woman, and child, from young to old alike, man and woman, we ask that all might know the name of Jesus Christ, not only with the lips, but also in the very heart believing upon him. I pray, O Lord, that thou wouldst use any who are present here today and may be going through the facade, the parade before men of professing the name of Jesus Christ or attending church or saying that they have a faith, that thou wouldst work powerfully within their hearts, changing it from stone to living hearts of flesh, that they would find within a willing and a working that all their lives might be lived unto thy glory, but that most of all, that there might be an empty, grasping, weak, and powerless hand of faith that simply holds on to Jesus as he holds us in his. Bless us, O Lord, for we know that we are sinners, but thou art a great and glorious Savior, and we pray unto thee that thou wilt wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. We ask all this in the name of Christ, the Lamb of God. Amen.